shadow of my doubt that says I'm not good enough or worthy of your heart. But if you hold my forever hope is never too far. I know that. In fact, I can't see the outcome from where I stand right now. From the song we just heard. So difficult at times in our life for each one of us to be able to see what good. How is this good? This isn't anything like I planned. This isn't anything like I wanted. 
I didn't ask for this sickness. I didn't ask for this detour. I didn't ask for it. You fill it in, and, and you're looking. And there's a Red Sea, and there's mountains, and the enemy is behind you. Seriously, God, you hear psalmists talk like this. Sometimes we're courageous enough to speak truth like that. But oftentimes, we'll get in a predicament. We'll get in a scenario. We'll get in a situation. And we will fight and argue and make demands or work out deals with God. <laughs> hey, if you do this, I'll do this. But God leads each one of us to the spots where we're in. We went over last week Red Sea rule number one. God directs our footsteps so he can display his glory. Now, there were some active discussions in, in groups this last week because the principle either riles you up or comforts you. It's one of the two. It just does. But God has you and I in the right spot. So the idea is be more concerned about God's glory than our relief. His promises, his he is faithful all the way through our praise and worship today. We were focusing on, on God's faithfulness. God is true. God will walk with us. But Pharaoh is ticked. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, I guess that's an understatement. He was angry. You worked some amazing things a couple millenniums ago. The children of Israel had just experienced unbelievable relief and saw you in action. But God, they're in a tough spot. They remembered all the things that you had done, but they're in a tough spot. They wondered, will you come through? Oh God, so many of us are there at times and so many of us remember those days and so many opportunities to be able to trust you in spite of circumstances. And so we argue and we do work deals and we try our best to trust you, but, but sometimes the enemy wins. God, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We don't want the enemy to have any strongholds. We don't want the enemy to win. We don't want to be focusing, well, what's behind us at all. In spite of the army, in spite of the horses' snorts, in spite of all the armor that's glistening, in spite of the spears and the arrows, in spite of the chariots, we want to focus on you. So we come to you today to hear from your word, to be strengthened, and to be encouraged. 
God, you are an amazing God. We do love you. And we repent of our lack of faith at times. We do. For you don't deserve it, and you don't, um, I guess, in some ways, punish. Our lack of faith does hurt us, Lord. It does. So strengthen us today. We know you love us. We know you're in control. We know you are the sovereign. Help us believe that. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what? I'm, I'm going to keep praying. Something else came to my mind. Father, I think the enemy does have a stronghold. Not only here at times, but all over our world at this time. I, I think the enemy, it feels like the enemy is, is gaining ground. So I pray. I pray for our teachers downstairs that you would give them wisdom and help them work with our children and give them an unbelievable sense of who you are, that their little minds and faith would grow. I pray, Father, for the churches in this area and the churches in this country and the churches all over the world. We pray, dear God, that they would uh, represent you well and preach your word and that the enemy and their strongholds would be destroyed, that faith would get stronger in spite of situations and circumstances. And we pray for Grace Point Church and we pray for Northbridge and we pray for new hope. Father, I pray today that you would give us fresh eyes. That's what I would pray. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Who knows? I, I may stop half, halfway through and still pray, I, you know. But realistically, I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me to Exodus 14. And we're going to continue our story. The series is found in Exodus 14, and I'm going to start reading at verse 5. You can follow along up on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bibles. Verse 5. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done? Letting all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot, called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, with each its commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel, who left with their fists raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and his chariots, his charioteers and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Phiharith and across from Baal Zephon. 
as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. Pharaoh changed his mind. Well, well, God knew that, and God was going to use that. Perhaps it was the lack of construction noises that shook up Pharaoh. But honestly, I think it was the multitude of Israelis as they left, clenching their fists and rising up these fists in defiance of Pharaoh. You know, in football, there's a newer penalty, and it's called taunting, all right? Whether you agree with it or not, and you think, hey, it's part of the game, or, or this or that, this is really what Israel did. They had won, and they were taunting Pharaoh. Well, the rage of the most powerful man on the planet was ignited. The recent plagues, the death of his firstborn, were all distant memories, even though it just happened. He gave the word. He harnessed up his pharaoh chariot, whatever that is, maybe the best and the classiest and the fastest and the most equipped. And the army responded. The scriptures tell us that 600 special forces chariots plus every other chariot, every other horse, and every other soldier. It was an unbelievable display of the most powerful nation on the planet at this time. No wonder the Israelites shuddered. It was desperate. It was a dire situation. For Israel, hopelessness. That's it. What else could they think? Now, millenniums later, we look at this. We say, this is a great story. Yeah. But when it happened, you've got to go back. We can kind of look down on these Israelis. I mean, who had the opportunity to see the power of God in these ten plagues? and wouldn't believe that God would take care of them. But they were there. And I think the sight of all these soldiers absolutely froze them. They had never, ever seen anything like this before. And the only thing they could think is that we are dead. Now, this might be the very point of our whole series, to be quite honest is that if we look around, whether it's a Red Sea in front of us or whether it's the Egyptians behind us, whatever we do, we don't understand what the future is. We don't understand how God is in control. We think, again, God may be on vacation or may have left us, but he didn't. And as we look forward and we'll celebrate this great victory, Right now, it looks pretty bad. So we go to our lesson for today, which is Red Sea Rule number two. And Red Sea Rule number two is this. Acknowledge your enemy, but fix your eyes on God. 
You see, our enemy is powerful like Pharaoh and desires to enslave you so that you actually wallow through life. Let's look at the parallels between Pharaoh and Satan. The enemy exists and it intimidates. Now, I want to stop right there because so many of us maybe don't even have a clue that we have an enemy. Oh, oh yes, maybe a little bit or maybe we'll make fun of it or maybe even make a joke like the devil made me do it. But I am pretty sure that most of us don't have a clue, don't understand the spiritual battle that we actually are in. Now, God is powerful, and God is worthy of our faith. So let's try and understand our enemy first before we look at what fixing our eyes on God looks like. Now, again, we could spend a long time on trying to understand our enemy and trying to understand all of the enemy's wiles, and I'm not going to go real deep here, but, but we do need to understand a few things. In Isaiah 14, the Scripture tells us that Satan rebelled against God way before creation. There was God and angels. And the scriptures tell us that Satan, at that time, perhaps even called Lucifer, was a little arrogant and thought that he could do better than God and rose up and there were multitudes of angels that thought he had a great idea. And the Lord tells us, because of his pride and his arrogance, he was tossed from God's presence well before creation. Now, whether we understand it or not, that Satan is allowed to roam right now. His forces are active. But they will be judged again with all of his army, and he will lose. That's all good news. It is. In fact, in Revelation, and not many of us kind of dip our toes into that book, it's a little bit difficult at times to understand with all of its imagery, but in the last chapters, in chapter 20, verse 10, this is a great verse because it kind of sums up everything that God is going to do to the enemy. And this is what the Apostle John writes. At the end of the age, then the devil... Who has deceived them, John writes, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever. (laughs) So yeah, the, the enemy is going to lose. The enemy is going to spend eternity apart from God and tormented forever and ever and ever. Satan's plan, actually, while he's roaming this planet, is simple. He wants company. That's all. He wants as many people to join him in this place of torment as possible. And we know that because in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, it says anyone who is not found written in the book of life will also be cast into the lake of fire. So if you're part of this church, we want you to know that we do believe that that there's a hell and, and that God loves each one of us and does not want us to spend time there. 
But the enemy has the exact opposite approach and is bent on trying to deceive and disrupt so that so many follow him into this place of torment. Now let me just quickly go through the scriptures as they describe Satan. And as they do, it'll help us understand a little bit more of our enemy. The scriptures describe Satan in Genesis 3 as a serpent. And the whole idea of the serpent, at least in this scenario, was to deceive. It was to cause doubt in God's word. The scriptures also describe Satan as a bird in Matthew 13, where this bird came and began to eat seed. Well, the whole idea is that it gets an image or we get an image of a bird trying to despoil or devastate God's harvest. Every time God's word is given out, he doesn't want it planted. He doesn't want fruit to be bore. So he tries to take it away. The scriptures talk about Satan, our enemy, as a wolf in John chapter 10 who attacks the flock. His whole goal is to destroy them. The scriptures describe Satan as a lion in 1 Peter chapter 5 who tries to devour the flock. Where the good shepherd protects and gives life, the, um, the lion wants to destroy and attack the flock. I did say the lion in 1 Peter chapter 5, right? And who tries to devour the flock. But the last image is found in Revelation 12, where the scriptures de- uh, describe Satan as a dragon. Now again, we've got enough cartoons around, and sometimes dragons are really cute, and sometimes, you know, you cuddle with dragons with your kids, uh, but this dragon's pretty ugly and pretty scary, and tries literally to destroy Jesus. So as we look at the scriptures and just look at Satan, all of these things are destructive. All these things want to steal life. All these things want to destroy. Now the Apostle Paul acknowledges the enemy's work, and we just finished a study in the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 13, in Acts chapter 26, and literally in 2 Timothy, when Paul writes to Uh, Timothy, the Apostle Paul, in uh, the history and in actual writing, all acknowledges the enemy's work. He doesn't fear the enemy, but he literally wants us to know that the enemy is moving. The enemy is oppressive. The enemy is doing his best to destroy Christians, their faith, and the church. The scriptures also, in this big picture, acknowledge that Satan's activity is happening even right now, whether you believe it or not, and blames Satan for, listen to this, causing trouble in churches. In Romans chapter 16, the scriptures blame Satan for bringing sickness Not every sickness and not every trouble, but for doing that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, 
The Scriptures blame Satan for hindering ministry. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Scriptures blame Satan for hurting marriages, dissolving marriages, conflict within marriage. The scriptures tell us that the enemy's activity happens and we and blame the enemy for idolatry and the worship of idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The scripture blames Satan for the lack of forgiveness for others. That's it's Satan moving and causing grudges. And we find that in Ephesians 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is interesting. The scriptures blame Satan when converts go off course. They choose a different path. He makes this alternative path so seductive. We find that in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1. We also know the scriptures blame Satan for having false teachers about. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And then lastly, at least the last one I'm going to bring up is that Satan is blamed when church leaders fail and have poor reputations in the neighborhood. And we find that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now what I want to say is this. You may hear all that and say, oh, well, <laughs> no problem then. The devil made me do it. There's the excuse. Uh, you know, I just, have, I even have Bible that just says that. Now, these are not excuses, but illustrations of the enemy's active role. We don't think the enemy's active when a marriage gets torn apart. We, we don't. We think, oh, well, it's a personality, or oh, it's a, and, and we say, that's not how God sees it. We look at the enemy, how much the enemy works, how hard the enemy works. And many of us don't have a clue. And the enemy loves it. Just plain loves it. Now, here's the danger. Instead of just acknowledging or recognizing the enemy is active, we feel like the Israelites in our story, overwhelmed, defeated, and ready to go back to slavery, which we're going to chat about in a second. So let's see what the Bible has to say about acknowledging and fixing our eyes on Jesus. I've said it already a few times, but you and I need to recognize that there is a battle. But actually, there is no battle if you're not part of God's family. The scriptures tell us you're actually, your master is the enemy. So there's no battle there. But when you come to faith, and coming to faith is critical and the first step in thwarting Satan's power. In Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 13, let me read for you. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. 
when we come to faith, when we trust Christ as our Savior, when we are rescued and put our faith in Christ's work in the cross, He rescues us and transfers us and changes who we um, can follow. So if you're a believer, if you're part of God's family, then realistically there is going to be a battle because the enemy hates it. Now let's put it this way. Acknowledging the enemy means recognizing there is an enemy and that we are in a spiritual battle. So many of you, again, as we look at this, yes, yes, I, I know. I know we're in a battle. But let me try to heighten our understanding. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes to a church he spent the most time at, probably the most thriving of all of his churches, perhaps the one who is most spiritually mature than all of his churches. And I say that only because at the very end, he's reminding them something that seems rather rudimentary. But this is what he says, and it needs to be a reminder to all of us. A final word, Paul writes, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but we're fighting against evil rulers and authorities of unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Literally, our fight as believers is against unseen powers and principalities. This simply means our strategy and our weapons need to be effective against mighty powers in this dark world and evil spirits in heavenly places. It just makes sense. But if we're not trained, if we don't understand what this looks like, we're in a battle, we get defeated, and we feel like giving up. Now, once we all recognize that we are in a spiritual battle, in my opinion, three things need to happen in order to live abundantly, in order to live victoriously. And that doesn't mean that all of a sudden that you win everything. Winning victoriously means that you walk with God, recognize that He is the one in authority, and He will give you power to overcome all of the enemy's trickery. First thing, fix our eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. The author of Hebrews here uses a really, uh, well, it's an easy metaphor, especially for those in the first century. 
But most of us can relate, saying that, hey, you are in a race. So keep your eyes on the goal. Don't get distracted. Keep your eyes on the person who will motivate you. Keep your eyes on the one who will encourage your faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. This alone enables you to run unencumbered. It makes sense you take off everything that hinders your race. Good things. Yesterday I had an opportunity to go watch my granddaughter run at a conference meet. And so there were 80 girls in her division and the gun sounded and she took off. I, I want you to know this. It was about 48 degrees at that moment. All right. None of them were wearing snowshoes, snow covering, snowmobile suits. None of them were even wearing jackets. In fact, if you looked at them, you would think, whoa, they should be in the Bahamas or something. All right? They had hardly any clothing on. Now, they were all decent, okay. But, but realistically, there wasn't a lot to encumber them. They had a three-mile race, and they had to take off. The author here says this, you know, when you run your race, there might even be good things like a snowmobile suit and snowmobile boots. But sometimes you got to take those things off, even if it's cold and even if it's uncomfortable to run that race because you won't be able to do it. And then a little bit more clarity says, you confess any sin that literally weighs you down or is that your anchor? Could you imagine any of those girls trying to carry a 50-pound bag of sand with them on this race? No. That's dumb, Rick. No one would do that. They probably wouldn't even finish. I mean, there's some pretty strong girls there, but, but I'm pretty sure they wouldn't. This is what the author is telling us. We are in a race. And I want you to know, there's some good things you might need to take off on your race. There's sin that certainly you have to confess. What we're trying to understand, it's about a relationship. It's fixing our eyes on Jesus, making sure that we can run this race. There are a few things in the race that we have to prepare ourselves, but I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. I want you to spend time with Jesus. I want you to listen to Jesus. It was so encouraging this last week. I sat down with a young person, and, and this person just asked me, he said, you know, Pastor Rick, I, I'm just struggling in my relationship with God. Oh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about spending time with Jesus. Uh, how about you spend time in the Gospels with Jesus? How about you begin to learn more about Jesus? And you'll learn more about God, and you'll hear about his love and his forgiveness and his passion. Oh, this will encourage you. And then spend time listening to Jesus. Don't be so busy. We have to learn his promises. 
So many of us expect to run the race without spending time with Jesus, focusing on Jesus, without spending time in the Word and not listening to the Word, not understanding its promises, not recognizing what God says to us in life. And so anytime we hit an obstacle, anytime we come up against, well, the difficulty, we stumble. We forget the promises. And forget that God has given us his presence, that the Holy Spirit lives in us. These are all amazing and wonderful things on our race. And sometimes we feel in life we're alone. Sometimes we feel in life, well, what's the use? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Secondly, and this is huge, resist. Resist the enemy. Stand up against the enemy because you have God's power. Stand up literally. Face the wolf. Face the lion. Face the dragon. And to be quite honest, any one of those things, oh yeah, I could do that. But you're in the woods sometime and you see a lion come up. Most of us are not, eh, no big deal. It is scary. We are trying to figure out how to get out of this, where to go, and what to do. You see, temptation and sin does not have power over us. We've talked so much about the three aspects of salvation, about two circles, and I was thinking maybe I should bring that back again, but I didn't. But just to remind you of this, when we come to faith... We are saved from the penalty of sin. God justifies us because of our faith in the blood. But the second part of salvation, the second aspect of salvation, is that God saves us from the power of sin. We are being sanctified. We are being made holy. God is chipping away the things that don't bring himself glory. We don't have to serve our old master. Because every time we sin, every time we run from God, it's death. Every time we do that, it's destructive. Every time. So the scriptures tell us this. How do we resist? This is great. And if you want to mark these verses down, I'm not putting them up. I will be reading them to you. But there's a little bit of a theme here. And the theme is this, humble yourselves and acknowledge God's power. Recognize you can't stand up against the lion. Recognize you can't stand up against the power of sin. Recognize that every time temptation comes, if your strength is not Jesus, you will fail. Just recognize that. So the scriptures call that humility. I I can't do this myself. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how educated you are. I don't care how much experience you have. Look at David, a man after God's own heart. Put in the right situation, in the right scenario, he commits murder and adultery. None of those things which are really high on anybody's list. So, how do we do this? We humble ourselves, recognizing that God has got to do this for us and acknowledge God's power in us. In James chapter 4, starting at verse 7, James writes this, so humble yourselves before God. 
resist, stand up against the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, remember? And God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Confess your sin. Stay connected with God. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You will be able to stand firm. That's the goal, that you stand. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. You can stand up against a lion. I can stand up against a lion. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, Paul writes, after he says we're in the midst of a spiritual warfare, Put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy. You can do that in the time of evil. Then after the battle, this is so cool, you will still be standing firm. And I love Daniel 11. It's up on the screen. This is, again, talking a little bit of the end times in this part of Daniel. But listen to what Daniel says, talking about the enemy. He will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant, who are disobedient. But look at this last line. But the people who know their God, the people of a relationship with God, the people who are fixing their eyes on Jesus, they will be strong and resist him. <laughs> Talk about knowing God. I have to go back to David again. And a story that every one of you have heard and perhaps told but it is classic. David spent a whole lot of time with God before he faced Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. In fact, even as he talked to King Saul, when he heard the threat, when Goliath was, you know, yapping it out and, and trying to defy the Almighty God, he goes to Saul, the king, and says, I'll go fight Goliath. <laughs> Who are you kidding? You're a kid. In fact, you're probably a scrawny kid at this moment. He goes, oh, no, no, no. I, I just want you to know something. When I was watching my sheep, there was a bear and there was a lion. <laughs> Didn't have a chance. Didn't have a chance. I took care of him. Whoa. Really? And, and what are you going to do about Goliath? Oh, my Lord's going to win. God's going to win. I, I can't do this. It's not about me. It's about my God. How cool is that? We hear the story over and over and over again, but the principle's there. 
this young man who knew God, maybe more than the whole army of Israel and certainly the king. He had already had some experience that said, hey, you know what, God never let me down. God didn't do this. God protected me here. I know that. This giant is nothing. This giant looks scary. This giant is scary. But my God is way, way bigger. That's all. David goes up, winds up his sling, and lets it go. And everybody, their jaws drop. The Philistines, they couldn't believe it. The Israelis said, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Look who's standing right now. The shepherd boy is standing. How did that work? Well, it worked because David fixed his eyes on God. He knew God. God had been faithful over the years. And the challenge that was before him, it wasn't even a challenge. He knew God. He understood how God worked. He stood up in God's power and with God's authority. You know what? The Lord doesn't want any of us to live defeated. He doesn't. The Lord knows that the enemy is ruthless and is unbelievably strong. But we can stand up to the enemy and literally defeat the enemy in our life. The third thing, the third thing that we need to do to defeat the enemy is pray. But I want you to know this, that's next week. And we're, we're going to look at next week and spend some time seeing how prayer literally defeats an enemy. Let me wrap up. C.S. Lewis, some of you have read his works, and he, he kind of had the reputation of uh, really being a wise man. And, and he once said this. He said, we focus as believers too much or too little on the enemy. And it wasn't a giant line, but it, but it made a lot of sense to me. I think if we go to either extreme, either extreme, the enemy smiles. Like, like we feel so, um, shall I say, overwhelmed, and, and that the enemy's behind everything, or we just don't even care about the enemy. I, I think... There is a happy medium here as we walk with God. We need to acknowledge the enemy, but not influenced or intimidated because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And fixing our eyes on Jesus means spending time with him. It means resisting the enemy and living obediently with our Lord. You know what I've noticed over the years is that our maturity level creates two scenarios. Well, at least two scenarios. The longer we walk with God, the more battles we have, the more we rely on God, the more we trust God, 
The more lions and tigers and bears that we defeat, the more giants that fall, our confidence starts to grow. But the worst case scenario as we move forward is that we see the enemy in our peripheral vision. In other words, we focus on Jesus, but, but the enemy's there and still maybe bothers us too much. It's kind of like teaching someone how to drive. You know, you say, keep your eyes on the road. And they look at you and say, well, how am I supposed to look at the speedometer? Okay, look at the speedometer. How am I supposed to look in a mirror when I change lanes? How am I supposed to... And, hey, lighten up, dude. Okay? It'll come. You're peripheral. You'll be able to figure this out. But the best case scenario is this. As you walk through life, the enemy affects you less and less because all you see is Jesus. You don't see that giant. That was just a joke. You guys, what are you looking at the armor? What are you doing? Our God's been offended. I'm going to go defend him. With what? (laughs) What he gave me. (laughs) Some rocks and a slingshot. It's our God. Our God desires deeply for us to walk with him, to do life together. Let's pray. God, I thank you today for the reminder that the enemy looks so overwhelming at times. But you are with us, God. You have been faithful before. We don't have to obey the enemy. We don't have to succumb to his temptations or his trickery. No matter how many times he tells me you're unfaithful, I know you are faithful. So God, increase our faith. Help us recognize that even in spite of terrible scenarios or situations, that you are with us and that the enemy can't defeat us because you are stronger. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in your son's name.